You're listening to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast, brought to you by the Diversity Movement. I'm your host, Jackie Ferguson, author, speaker, and human rights advocate. On this show, I'm talking to trailblazers, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers who share their inspiring stories and insights on business, inclusion, and personal development. Thank you for downloading this episode. I am truly grateful for you. Enjoy the show. Thanks for listening to Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. My guest today is Minette Norman. Minette is an author, speaker, and consultant focused on developing transformational leaders who create inclusive working environments. Minette, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me, Jackie. Of course. Minette, you didn't start off as a leadership consultant in your career. Will you share a little bit about your professional journey and what inspired you to get into this work? Yes, that is absolutely true. I never thought I'd be doing this. And I, I even never thought I would spend 30 years in the tech industry, which I did. I I started out is back in 1989 as a technical writer at Adobe. And I ended up spending 30 years in the software industry. And in those 30 years, I spent about 10 years as an individual contributor and 20 years in management and leadership roles. And basically kind of increasingly large roles as those 20 years went on, you know, starting from managing a team of six or something and then ending up having a thousand people or more when I was VP of engineering. So a very long career, a very unexpected career. And how that career led to the work that I'm doing now is really the the last five years when I was in tech, I was leading engineering at a big company, and I was asked to transform how we developed software. And what I realized was that technical hurdles were only a part of the problem, and it was really much more about changing the culture and creating a more collaborative culture, a culture that was willing to listen to other ideas instead of feeling like I'm always right or my group is always right. And embracing all aspects of diversity, which we were just starting to talk about really when I was there and where I realized we were quite bad at. You know, tech, you know, as you know, tech has been notoriously male-dominated, has been really not as diverse a workforce in most of the tech companies anywhere. And I was a woman leading large teams in a very male-dominated environment. And I realized that you know, I don't always feel like I fit in here. I don't always feel, I certainly don't feel like I'm part of the insiders club. And yet I was also sitting in a position of white privilege and realizing my colleagues who were from underrepresented groups and people of color and people from other really diverse backgrounds where they felt like I don't fit in here or I'm not seen as, as the dominant group, people were suffering. You know, I mean, honestly, it comes down to suffering and not being able to thrive at work. And I realized after all that time and finally left the industry in 2019 that I wanted to focus on helping leaders and their teams create an inclusive environment where everyone can do their best work and everyone can show up as themselves and not have to mask who they really are. And so that's the work that I'm doing now. And that's amazing. Let's dig in a little bit because you said the word suffering, and that is um, quite a provocative word, right, when you're thinking about being in the workplace. And I'm sure there are listeners that are like, what do you mean by suffering? What does that mean, Minette? 
Yeah, and I, I, I use the word, uh, not, I'm not being hyperbolic, I think. And the reason I use the word suffering is I think when people are in pain, they are suffering. And yeah. one of the things that I learned, and this was um, while I was still in tech, I was doing a lot of reading about collaboration and human interaction. And I discovered um, some studies that were done by some UCLA neuroscientists, and they were doing experiments about exclusion. And when we feel that we are left out of a group or rejected, our brains register pain in exactly the same way as they register physical pain. And so when I say suffering, I am not exaggerating. People who are feeling like I cannot actually be part of this group or I'm not welcome in this group, we're experiencing that pain that our brains, our brains don't distinguish between physical and, and social pain. So you're going to work every day feeling like, Oh, I've got to mask who I am. I have to cover who I am. I have to probably agree with the group even if I disagree because mm -hmm. otherwise I'm going to be rejected. And so this calculation we're doing all the time is exhausting and it's painful. It can be very lonely, especially when you're the only, you know, I mean, I talk to so many um, people of color, basically the only black woman in the room, the only Latina in the room and feeling like, do I have to represent my entire demographic, you know, or do I try to be like everybody else? And it's exhausting. And I was, I was often the only woman in the room, right? And so what does that mean? Do I have to fit in or can I actually show up with my femininity, for example, or do I have to be one of the boys? All of those things are causing pain and suffering because we cannot just be ourselves. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I think I certainly understand what you meant when you said that, but sure. for so many people, that's a new concept, right? And they, you know, we all think within our, our lens of experience, but it's important, especially as inclusive leaders, which we'll get into next, to be able to think outside of that and think of, put yourself in other shoes. And so that's so important. Thanks for, for sharing that. Minette, your book is called The Boldly Inclusive Leader. What are the characteristics of a boldly inclusive leader and how do we develop those skills? Well, where do I start since I did write a whole book? <laughs> I'm going to start with the word boldly just because I think, you know, I chose that word deliberately because mm -hmm. I feel that we often tiptoe into this work. And we go sort of like, we dip a toe in and say, I'm going to try something. But bold to me means that we're just going to be unflinching in our commitment to creating an inclusive environment. We may have to challenge the status quo. And we do that repeatedly because it's no longer serving us or the people around us. And so that's, that to me is bold, is that we're willing to really tear down, I think, the models of leadership that have been there before us, the, the models of, you know, I'm the, I'm the perfect leader, I'm the all-knowing leader, I know everything, and I have nothing to learn from the people around me. And instead to, for where I would say is a boldly inclusive leader, is someone who comes in as a human being to the workplace, even if you're the CEO, you're not perfect, you don't have to be perfect, you need to be human, and you need to respect that every other human being around you needs to feel that they have value, that they're seen and they're heard, and that they're respected for who they are. And so that, to me, means that we show up as leaders with curiosity to learn from the people who are not like us, and not to surround ourselves just with the people who are like us, which leaders tend to do if they're not if they're not deliberately being inclusive, 
it's too easy to just hire in our own model and, you know, have, have a very homogeneous workforce. So we need to get curious. We need to listen and we need to listen with an open mind and an open heart to the people who are going to probably challenge us because they see things from a different perspective and they've had different life experiences, different cultures, different backgrounds, whatever it is, different educations. So I think that's the beginning. And then really then branching out, we have to get super self-aware of our own behavior and how we, how we show up, how we listen, how we get curious how we reward what we reward and what we ignore and what we punish and all of those things to pay attention to. And then really only then can we change, I think, the systems around us to be more equitable and make sure that we are not, you know, only promoting the white men or only promoting the white women or whatever it is that we're doing. Ageism, you know, sexism, all the things that are out there, we have to become aware of them in ourselves and in the people around us. And then we, and we challenge and we say, we're going to do better here. I love that. That's so important. And, you know, you mentioned vulnerability as a characteristic, which, you know, as a Gen Xer, that was not my experience going into the workforce, right? You're, the manager knew everything and had all the right answers and don't question, you know, my decisions. And now we're expected to be vulnerable in the workplace, which is a little bit scary for some. Yes, yes. Um, and not have all the answers and not have all the right answers and be able to share that we've made a mistake. But we need to do that because that's the expectation of the workforce, right? They want that leader that they can identify with, that they can be vulnerable with, that they can try new things and and potentially innovate, right? Because when you can't make a mistake, you certainly can't innovate. And so all of that is important. And we're making this real shift, or we have been, and people are catching up, right? Making this real shift to inclusive leadership from this kind of dictatorial leadership. Um, and so it's important that we're able to understand what that is, what that means, how to start practicing that. So that's so important, Minute. Thank you for sharing that. You also mentioned being human, and I know that you've mentioned this in other interviews that you've done. You said, lead better by being more human. What does that mean specifically? Mm. Well, I guess it's it's somewhat related to vulnerability in mm-hmm. that it means I'm not perfect. It means that, you know, and and certainly those were the models of leadership that, and you said you're a Gen Xer, I'm actually the end of the boomer generation. And that was not the model of leadership we saw. It was very much like that impermeable leader who gets up and knows all and sees all. So to me, what does it mean to be more human? Uh, I think you're right that our workforces today connect with a leader who shows up as a flawed being. Like we're not perfect. And I can actually connect with you better if you show up that way. And I'll give you an example from my own experience. So I was actually fairly early in my management career and I was making, I was doing a reorg of a department and I had, I had people all over the world and I was figuring out which headcount w- went where. And I put one of the roles, I think in the U S and someone called me out and said, Manette, you know, this role really needs to be either in Europe or Asia because they're going to be communicating all the time with people there. And so time zones just don't work out. And I, I reversed my decision based on that information because I got new information that I hadn't had. 
And I realized I made a mistake. And I felt so vulnerable getting up and saying, you know what, I got some new information and I'm actually changing this decision. And this position is now going to be based in Europe or Singapore, wherever we ultimately decided. And I was afraid I would be looked at as like a weak leader who can't even make a good decision. And instead, I got so much positive feedback for that because they said, we really appreciate that you listened to the feedback and you you changed your mind. And that was a big learning for me that that could actually be a strength, whereas I had been beating myself up about it, thinking I'm weak and I'm bad and I, I don't see everything. Well, no, of course I can't see everything. I can't know every piece of information, even if I lead this department. I rely on the people around me to point out what I've missed. I think that is something we could all learn and remember as leaders, that you don't have to get it right. You do need to be open to hearing other perspectives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk a little more about your book, the Boldly Inclusive Leader. And what can we learn by reading it? Well, I tried to make it both compelling from a storytelling perspective, because I really believe that we viscerally connect with human stories. So every chapter is full of my own real-life stories from the workplace and married with practical tips that you can put into place. And so what I did in each chapter is I have you know, a focus of each chapter, whether it's empathy or listening or psychological safety, I have 10 chapters. But in the end of each chapter, I include weekly practices and daily practices and questions to ask yourself. Because what I hope from this book that every reader will take away is that if I am going to become a better, more human, more inclusive leader, it's going to take some work. It's not like I read this book and I'm there. It's going to take practice and commitment. And so I try to offer tools that will help you. Like, for example, um, let's let's just say we're talking about listening and we're working on trying to be more open-minded listeners to ask yourself, like, what happened this week when I got defensive, when I was challenged? And what? how did I respond? And maybe I didn't respond in the best way. And that shut someone down. And we don't, as an inclusive leader, you don't want to shut people down. So what was that trigger for me that made me defensive? How might I as a leader who's trying to grow and learn, how might I recognize that next time it happens? For example, I'm, I'm, you know, you just challenged my idea. I'm, I'm feeling that I am beat red and my heart is racing and I know I'm defensive. And what I might do differently is just pause. Just pause. And then in that calming moment, I can then have a better response rather than lashing out at the other person. That's one example of something we can become more aware of. And then to ask like, what was it about that remark that triggered me? And why am I responding? You know, maybe Jackie, you said something to me and I was fine. It didn't bother me. But another colleague said something. What was it about that person? Was it their delivery? Was it who they are? Do I need to connect with them offline and have a conversation with them? There's lots of introspection that I think we can all do as to how can we become better leaders and to really open up conversations as well. So um, that, that's the beginning of it. But I think there's, there's stuff to learn about listening. There's stuff to learn about how we empathize with others. There's a lot to learn about team dynamics. And I talk about running inclusive meetings and how to create a psychologically safe environment where everyone feels free to speak up. So there's a lot in there. I, I also, I touch on um, mentoring and sponsorship and allyship as well, because I think leaders really have, this, this is how I feel about leadership. I felt this as I was growing in my own career. When I had a 
pretty significant role and a platform and power and privilege to some degree. I felt like it's my my job now to stand up for those who maybe don't have as much of a platform or as much as a a voice. I would like to imbue that in every leader, that they are not there just for themselves or for the you know, the well-being of their company. They are there to help everyone rise and do their best work together and find their voices and find their power and find their strength. And there's a lot that comes from that that is, you know, super fulfilling for a leader if they're open to it. Absolutely. That's such good advice and so interesting. You know, you talked about psychological safety and Minette, you often talk about psychological safety and even have a book on it. That's right. A book I co-wrote, yeah. Yes. You say that that's integral to inclusive leadership. Tell us what psychological safety is and how do we as leaders begin to foster it? Mm -hmm. The reason, so what it is first, good question. What psychological safety is, it is the feeling or belief that in a group, you can ask a question, you can disagree with someone else respectfully, you can make a mistake and be imperfect, and you know that you will not be marginalized or punished or humiliated for doing any of those. So why that is so fundamental and foundational to inclusive cultures is that without it, we do not feel we can be the one who challenges. For example, if you are the team leader, Jackie, and you say, you know, I think this is what we should do, if you have created a safe environment, I might raise my hand or just say, you know, Jackie, have you thought about this, which is coming at it from a different angle? And in a, in a good team environment where psychological safety was high, we could have those discussions. And every member of the team would feel it was okay for them to share their point of view. Or, you know, even to ask a naive question like, I didn't understand what you just said. So often we don't ask that because we think it's going to make us look stupid, right? But instead to like, I didn't understand that. Can someone explain it? And that's that's fine to do. So it's very important because it when people feel safe, they feel that they can share their innovative ideas. You know, it's it's foundational to innovation. It's foundational to exposing risks. Um, there's there's a lot of research, in fact, that has shown that a lack of psychological safety has resulted in serious issues, including uh, plane crashes, the Boeing seven thirty seven Max disasters have been traced back to a lack of people feeling safe to speak up when they knew there were technical issues with those planes and with the software. And there there are case studies on that, which are quite extreme and quite serious. So assuming you're not in the aeronautical industry, you will still (laughs) find that without psychological safety, people will not share the bad news with you. Mm -hmm. And and you as a leader, don't you want to know the bad news? one would think, right? We need to know the good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm -hmm. But often I have felt it was the the leader that I worked for only wanted to hear the good news. And so we hid the bad news. And when you hide the bad news for too long, things, things go bad, right? Things definitely just, they get worse. They don't get better instead of being able to talk openly about what's going badly and how might we fix it. So some tips for how can we create a psychologically safe environment and one is, one is really a simple one for leaders to start asking is, and we start with this in, our, in the playbook that I co-wrote with Caroline Helbig, one of the first things we offer as a tip is ask the question, what am I missing? And what am I missing is a powerful question because what you're doing when you ask that question is you're saying, 
Yeah, I, I am imperfect. I don't see and know everything. I see things through my own lens. I am inviting other perspectives in. And then you, you probably have to get used to doing that a lot before people respond. Um, someone recently said to me, and this is, this is about inclusion, but it's also a really great question is, who am I? Who are we missing? So in this meeting, who are we missing whose perspective we might need, right? I think that's a great addition. And then when you start to, this is, this is something that is somewhat related to how we run meetings, but it's also about psychological safety because a, a lot of it happens in a meeting setting because that's when groups get together often, right? Is how do we listen to one another? And are, are, is everyone getting listened to in the same way? Or are some people getting interrupted? Uh, and, and there's a lot of research around women getting interrupted more, much more frequently than men. And this is across industries. And so we have to pay attention to who's getting interrupted and whose voice is not being fully heard and who's taking all the airtime maybe. And so how might we run meetings in a way where everyone feels welcome to speak and everyone has time to speak? No one is dominating. So, so, so Caroline and I actually, you know, offer a tip of like, why not do a turn-taking rule? You don't have to do it every time, but how about say, uh, no one speaks twice until everyone speaks once. It's an idea to try when you're finding that people are not speaking a lot. And I think the other thing is that because we often feel that our voice is not welcome, for whatever reason, we're marginalized, we're not part of the in crowd, we may, as leaders, need to find other ways to get people to participate that is not going to be speaking in a meeting. And so how might we collaborate on documents together or on a shared whiteboard where people, or in chat even, you notice in, in online meetings that people are often way more vocal in chat than they are by unmuting themselves. And that's because it's less vulnerable, right? It's less risky to type something than it is to raise your hand, unmute yourself, and then suddenly have something brilliant to say. You feel like you have to have something brilliant to say, right? Mm -hmm. right, right, right. And um, there's been some really interesting research about how, how things like chat and asynchronous communication do so much to make people feel safer and more included. And so I think there's a lot we can do. And to, to the point you initially mentioned about like not being perfect and sharing our failures, openly talking about failure turns out to be a very important way to create a safer environment, a psychologically safer environment. And leaders have to lead the way on this by being willing, you know, like that time I just shared with you, being willing to say, I made the wrong decision. I got new information. This is what I learned. This is what I might do differently going forward. And then why don't we make that part of our team practice that we all share things that didn't go well, things that did go well. What did we learn from each of them? And that that becomes part of the group norms so we can destigmatize talking about mistakes and failures and instead learn intelligently as a group from them and not keep repeating the same mistakes and failures. So there's a lot to be done, but little things can make a big difference. That's, I think, the encouraging news. Absolutely. Minette, thank you for sharing those best practices. There's so many great tips in there. You know, from my experience, one of the things that I make a point to do is uh, to allow quiet space, right? Sometimes when you get to three seconds of silence, right, somebody feels like, well, I, I need to say something because this is weird, right? <laughs> but sometimes people who, what I call are processors, Right? They like to say, okay, what did I hear? How do I feel about it? What don't I understand? What don't I know? 
And they're going through all of these things before they ask their first question, before they share their first idea. And then you've got those people that are like, oh, opening, it's my turn to talk, right? And so you don't give space for those processors because the people who are like ready to speak at a moment's notice are already talking. But giving that quiet space to say, I'll take a moment while you all gather your ideas and and share if you're, you know, if you've got something to share, um, I think is is so important. And I, again, those best practices are so important in creating inclusive meetings because so many meetings, and I'm sure all of us who have, you know, been in a, any career at, at, for any length of time have been in multiple meetings where they are not inclusive, right? And they're, they don't welcome participation from other people. But it's so important because you don't know what kind of cool idea or innovation or different way to solve a problem you're going to get from the people that you don't often hear from. And so exactly. creating inclus- inclusive meetings is so important. Thanks for sharing that. I love the holding silence for the mm-hmm. processors. And I think we don't do that enough. So I'm so glad you mentioned that as a practice. I think, you know, some of the time we could go even more than the three seconds and say, let's have a couple minutes for everyone to prepare what they want to say. And then then maybe we, you know, just keep the people, the quick talkers to from speaking. I love the silence. It's really powerful. And you're right. The innovative ideas often come from the quietest people. Mm, that's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Minette, let's talk about Minette Norman Consulting. Can you tell us about some of the people you work with and some of the problems your services help to solve? Yeah, I, uh, I offer consulting and workshops and talks. And what I generally find when I started my business, which was in 2020, is that it was mm-hmm. mostly tech companies that found me because of my background. And, sure. you know, that, that's, that's, it was all through referral or LinkedIn or whatever. And what they're often trying to solve is, you know, usually people who find me already care about diversity, equity, and inclusion and good workplaces and healthy workplaces, or they wouldn't be looking for someone who focuses on inclusion. And they're often trying to solve interesting problems where they're already committed, but they're stuck in a certain way. And it's often they'll come back with some data. They've done a survey. And, you know, recently I worked with a tech company in Silicon Valley and they had, one of the VPs had gone out and met with women around the globe and really surveyed them about their experiences and got anecdotal information as well as quantitative information about what they were experiencing in the workplace. And then they bring me in to say like, we've got some serious problems here. And so we, I like in that case, I did a fireside chat with the woman who had done the the field work, the Mm -hmm. VP who had gone out. And then we just invited the audience to ask questions and I offered suggestions. So that was, that was one type of thing. Sometimes they bring me in for a longer engagement where it's like, we are really having a problem with people speaking up. And so, and then we, you know, sometimes I'll do an assessment, but often it's just, I find that it's, you can't do a one-time thing. What you really need to do is come in and do ongoing work. So one tech company, big tech company brought me in um, and they wanted to explore speaking up and really talking about things openly so that everyone felt like they had a voice. And then, so I did like a first talk and then I came back and I just held an open session of what is challenging since we last met and what what has changed. And it's so interesting because as you start to do this work, you find that certain things get easier and then there's still really big hurdles. So then we go the next, we unpack the next thing and the next thing. And that's where I think the real work happens is that 
we, we go beyond the surface level and then we start to really do the work. And that's the work that I love to do. So yeah, and what's been interesting lately is that, as I said, it was mostly tech companies that brought me in, but now it seems that people from other, other walks of life and other industries are finding me and I'm doing some work with a university coming up. I'm doing some work with a school district and with a county government in California. So what I'm learning is that these principles of inclusion and psychological safety are needed everywhere. And it's certainly, you know, my background is tech industry, but everyone needs to be heard and seen and valued. That's exactly right. Minette, what do leaders often get wrong about inclusive leadership? Well, I think one of the first things is that they forget about the inclusive part and they really <laughs> focus on diversity hiring uh-huh. because it's often tied in with DEI, right? And we think if only I can get my metrics to be better, then I'm done. And I think that that's a bit backwards. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm have this talk that I'm doing next, coming up soon that I called inclusion comes first because, and the reason I think that is that I think if we focus on diversity hiring, and then we think, oh, now I need to work on inclusion and being a more inclusive leader. We do have it backwards because if we bring people from all walks of life and all backgrounds and all ethnicities and ages and cultures, et cetera, and we bring them into a company that is not inclusive and that really has this sort of dominant culture and everyone else is an outsider, well, those people are not going to feel welcome and they're not going to feel they can show up as themselves. We, we talk about like, showing up as yourself and bringing your full self to work. And no one's going to do that if the culture doesn't invite that, right? And so I think where leaders can get that wrong is to be only focused on the numbers and not think about what am I doing as a leader to create a culture where if I bring someone in who is neurodivergent, that they are going to be able to fully participate. If I bring someone in who's from a very different culture, how are they going to feel? So I think we have to think if not first inclusion, then diversity, that we have to think at least simultaneously, these things are so important. And then the other thing that I think where where leaders stumble is that they still have that mindset of, I need to get it right. I'm a leader, I need to get it right. And I don't know how you find this, Jackie, but I find all topics around human beings messy. (laughs) It's not, you can't get it right. Human beings are so complex, right? And so what works for one person may not work for another, and you are going to get it wrong. We are all going to get it wrong. I get it wrong all the time. And being able to realize that and continue learning and continue doing better and repairing any damage that has been done when you do get it wrong, I think that's the part where leaders are like, this is too risky. I'm not going to do anything. So that's why I, I use that word boldly. I think you need to go boldly toward that discomfort and realize even if I'm not perfect and I'm going to make mistakes along the way, this is still important work and it's worth doing. Absolutely. Minette, I totally agree on both of those points. One of the things I often say is that I call this work a practice. I do too. That's funny. That's awesome. Because you're never going to have it all right. You're never going to have it all together. There's always learning to be done. There's always growth to be done. And then with people, we evolve, right? Our society evolves, um, our generations evolve. Yes. And what is right at one point may not be right at another point. And so you've got to be really willing to dig into continual education 
But it, it is a practice and you can't get it all right. And you've got to get comfortable with that and get comfortable with sharing lessons learned. And I, I think that's entirely, entirely correct. And the more people get around that, I think the easier it will be. And once you are in the habit of that, I think that it becomes less uncomfortable and just part of how you work and, and how you lead. Exactly. Practice is a word I use th- probably too much, but I use it throughout the Boldly Inclusive Leader. And I think I start off pretty early in the book saying that it is a practice. And like any other practice that you do in your life, it's going to take time and repetition and making mistakes along the way. But if you believe that anything you practice is worth doing, then so is inclusive leadership. So yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Minette, we're trained to be good at a job as an individual contributor, but we're generally not trained to become leaders. How do we become good leaders on the job, right? We're not pulled aside and said, okay, for this promotion, you get this incredible amount of training. We're just pushed into it, right? But we're expected to be good leaders and we're expected to inspire and get work done. How do we learn that on the job? I am so glad you brought that up. It's something I talk about a lot because, I mean, it was my story as well. I was good as a writer, as a technical writer, and then suddenly I was managing technical writers with no training, right? And the only training I was required to take in my first year was managing within the law. So we didn't have any lawsuits on my watch, right? I mean, this is typically what happens, right? And it's, you know, to me, what I think is it is such a huge responsibility, even if you manage one person. It is it is a very important job. And so I think the, the first question to ask, I mean, even before you take that management job, that first job is, do I, do I care to be, do I want to be a manager? Because sometimes we think we, we have to do it for the prestige or the pay or whatever, but we have to be interested in the lives of other human beings because that's what's that's what we're dealing with, right? The well-being and ability to do great work and thrive. So I think we have to get interested. And I think because you, we in most in most industries we don't get extensive management training. I think that's why it's important to have good resources. Like that's I mean one of the reasons I did write these books is to help people to give them practical ideas that. No, you don't have to get it all right from day one. You do need to be interested in other human beings. I think that's the prerequisite. And then you don't have to, you know, you have to get to know the people on your team. You really have to get interested to know what they're good at, what they need help at. And I think one of the first places to go is is to get to know those team members so that you can all complement one another's skills, where there's strength and where there's weaknesses. And someone asked me recently, maybe it was on another podcast, if, if you were coming in to a new team, if you were the leader coming into a new team, what would be one of the first things you did? And I, I said it on the uh, sort of off the cuff, but I do think it's it's a useful idea is that if you're a new manager, sit down with every one of your team members together and say, Whatever, what are my superpowers? Learn everyone's superpowers. What is everyone really good at? And what do people struggle with? Like, you know, I, I remember when I did this with my own team at one point, I was like, I am really good at communication, this and that. And I really struggle to deal with data and charts and things like that. And I need help with that. Well, the first thing that people do is they'll volunteer to help you with the things you need help with. And then you can tap into, oh, Jackie's really good at this, you know, and then you're a stronger team. So that's one of the first things I would recommend to a new leader is don't feel like you need to figure it out. Find out what you have on your team. 
Find out who's missing and what's missing and what do you, what's the next person you're going to need to hire? What's the gap that you have on your team? Mm-hmm. Great advice. Great advice. Manette, let's talk about some of the costs to organizations that aren't investing in inclusive leadership with their executive team and they're tolerating these antiquated leadership styles, right, that worked 20 years ago but are not going to work into the future. What does that cost organizations? I think the cost is uh, is huge. And I think it's probably not even maybe being seen yet, but I think what what's happening is you're getting very disengaged workforces, and certainly the younger generations will not tolerate this anymore. I think you know coming from my generation, maybe we were more used to this is the way leadership worked. And you said even for a Gen Xer, it was not so much the inclusive leadership model that you saw. But certainly the younger generations are saying, I want to be seen, I want to be heard, I want to have a voice. I'm not putting up with toxic bullshit leadership anymore. Mm -hmm. I I won't have that anymore. This is not where I want to work. I'm going to go somewhere else. So I think you're going to have, I think the costs will be that you will lose valuable employees. You will also get a reputation. I think, you know, obviously the social media is powerful. People know if they're going to a certain company, what that reputation is. Like, can I do great work at this company X? Or I didn't mean X, by the way. I didn't mean Twitter. I just, that was just general (laughs) company Y or Z. Um, Can I, can I actually really do great work here? Is this a community I want to be a part of? Because in some ways a company is somewhat of a community. Do I feel like this is a place I want to go to work or not. And so I think your reputation will be damaged over time. You will not be able to attract or retain talent. And then even the talent that you do have, you're not going to get the best results from because if people don't feel that their viewpoint and ideas are welcome, they'll just kick back and do the quiet quitting or whatever you want to call it. They will give their minimum effort and they won't be really thinking of how can I fully contribute here? How can I break through with new ideas? They won't do that because they don't feel it's worth it uh, or that their ideas are welcome. So I think the costs are really high and companies that are now not investing in it, you know, they may not see the the results right now because the, the labor market's tight and, you know, there've been a lot of layoffs and things like that, but there are always up swings, right? And when they come back and say, it's, you know, it's a, we have boomer bust and irrational exuberance and we hire like crazy, will we be able to hire again when we have not invested in creating a culture where people want to work? Mm, absolutely. And, you know, Manette, that, that's so right because what I found, you know, when I was looking for jobs earlier in my career, you would go on an interview, generally one, maybe two interviews. And then you, if you got offered the job, you would take the job and you would stay there and you would work with your head down, do, you know, your best work and hope to get promoted at, at the right time, right? And so, and now what I'm finding is these prospective candidates are interviewing you as an organization just as much as you're interviewing them, if not more. They're talking to your employees. They're, talk, they're looking at your social media they're going through all of their due diligence to determine where they want to work. And if they are the type of, empl- right, every organization wants that game changer, right? That incredible employee that is just going to bring innovation and bring, a, you know, a nice, fresh ideas to the table for your organization. They can do that anywhere. And so they are going to be careful about choosing the organization that's right for them. 
And if you don't meet the requirements that align with their values, you will not be the organization that they choose. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people are really selective now in where they're mm-hmm. going. Absolutely. And I think, Minette, another thing is they they want different things, right? It, it used to be like, well, just give them more money. But there's so much more that's involved in making sure that your employees are feel fulfilled and feel happy and feel a sense of belonging other than just, you know, what's on that, you know, salary sheet. And so you'll need to make sure as an organization that you're having conversations and talking about what things matter to your employee base. It's more than just that salary. Mm -hmm. Minette, this has been such a great conversation. What is the message that you want to leave our listeners with today? Mm. I would like everyone who listens to this to realize that no matter where you are in the hierarchy, you have a role to play in creating a truly inclusive environment where everyone can thrive and do their best work. And small changes in your behavior can make a huge, hugely positive impact. And so I encourage you to take that first step. And if you get my book, you'll get a few ideas. But even without my book, there's something you can do in the way you show up for your employees and your colleagues that can make them feel included and welcomed and valued and respected or not. Mm, Love that. Minette, how can listeners learn more about your work and get in touch with you? Well, my website is easy to find. It's just my name, MinetteNorman.com. And I also welcome talking to people on LinkedIn. I'm there a lot. I spend time there every day. So happy to engage there as well. Amazing. Minette, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation and I appreciate all of your amazing tips. Thanks for having me, Jackie. It was a great conversation. I agree. Thanks for listening to this episode of Diversity Beyond the Checkbox. If you enjoy the podcast, please take a moment to share it with a friend, leave a rating and review, and subscribe so you'll be reminded when new episodes are released. Become a part of our community on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. This show is proudly part of the Living Corporate Network and was edited and produced by Airfluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson. Take care of yourself and each other.